Well, we are in Romans 8, beginning with verse 1, uh, reading through verse 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be re, uh, fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through a spirit who dwells in you. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word here, the word that centers on the Holy Spirit and, of course, the work of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that this word would become realized in our hearts and in our minds, that you would begin to develop our minds in a way that we could understand our lives, understand who you are, understand who Jesus is, understand who the Spirit is, and understand the world that we live in. Lord, would you give us that grace? Would you use this to develop our minds and our hearts? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, a couple of years ago, Actually, it wasn't even a year. It was actually just a year ago. I was on vacation, and I was, uh, went to a very warm place, warm climate. And on that vacation, um, I got into a discussion with a good friend of mine. He's a pastor. Great friend of mine, in fact. And, and his, some of his ideas are a little different than mine in terms of the ministry and, and preaching and so forth. But this is an interesting thing that this friend of mine said to me. He said, look, if, if a person is preaching... And he, or in some cases she, uh, if he does not tell me why I should listen in the first two minutes, then I'm not going to be interested. And the congregation's not going to be interested. If preachers don't tell the congregation why they should listen in the first couple of minutes, then they're going to turn most preachers off. Well, and I thought to myself, well, I mean, if that's true, then there are not very many people listening to me. Because most of my sermons are not that front-loaded. I don't necessarily come right out and say, this is why you should listen to this sermon today. Uh, perhaps I should, but that's uh, not how, how I do it. So my preaching style is a little different from that. And so I trust that this congregation will be with me, that you'll have a little patience uh, with me this morning. Um, but in deference to my good friend who had this conversation with me, uh, I'm going to tell you why you should listen to this sermon. Okay? Um, this message is not filled with wonderful, wild stories, and this message is not one of those messages filled with wit. 
Doesn't have much humor in it, I admit it, and humor's good to a certain degree, right? Uh, but this is what this sermon will do for you, I hope anyway, this is just my intention. It will help you take another step forward in the transformation of your mind. That's pretty important, isn't it? I think that's important. I think it's one of those things that the church throughout our world is missing today, and certainly in our nation. It will help you take a step forward in the transformation of mind. It will help you to think like a Christian, and I hope it will also touch your heart too. I hope. I hope it will. I don't know if it will, uh, but I'm very confident that if you listen, at least for many of you, it will help to transform your mind. Paul was into the transformation of the mind, wasn't he? He was in, right here, Romans 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. Very uh, well-known passage in Romans, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I mean, Paul knew, he knew that this was one of the major battles and one of the major purposes of his ministry was to help people think differently, to think like a Christian. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um... The world of the mind is absolutely crucial for Paul. Okay, so, so in, in Thomas Oden, I know that most people here don't know who Thomas Oden uh, was, but Thomas Oden was, a, was a, a, a really outstanding scholar. A, really, I would actually say he was a great scholar. He died in 2016. He's a great scholar and uh, just a wonderful theologian. He actually used to be extremely liberal, and then he came to this realization that, wow, the scriptures actually mean what they say. And began to understand them in a whole new way. And so uh, Odin wrote a, a book. A, well, actually, it's a, it's a series of books. There's three volumes. But the first volume is called The Living God. It was a required text for me in seminary. I think it's a re- continued to be a required text for many people uh, in seminary. And Odin um, talked about, in, in the very, very early in that book, he talks about the nature of God and the character of God. Now, if I were to tell you or ask you, what is the difference between the nature of God and the character of God? Most of you would probably say, I haven't a clue. Probably, right? I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you already have read this material. I doubt it, though. Okay? According to Odin, God's character includes personality. includes his personality. It includes his freedom. It includes his will. And, and actually, most importantly, at least in my opinion, is that it includes his goodness. God is good, Right? God is good, okay? All these things can be perceived by us, by as, hum, from, as human beings, we can perceive God's character as he demonstrates his character within the created order. So uh, let me give you an example of that, okay? Um, remember when Jesus says something to Philip? Uh, he says this, he says, this is in John 14, this is tremendous, John 14, he says, uh, whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. Of course, that tells us that, that the disciples were able to begin to understand who God is in terms of his character because of the way that Jesus treated them. And Jesus, what did Jesus do constantly for them? He loved them. 
of them. He loved them and loved them. And John actually tells us that he loved them to the end. The disciples got that so they could understand God's character. That's a window that was open. So God's personality, his freedom, his will, and his goodness are seen in the person of Jesus in a major way. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't reveal his character before, but he reveals it in a greater way in the person of Jesus. This is also known as progressive revelation, but don't worry about that. Uh, I don't want to lose you with fancy words. Okay, so that's God's character. I'm going to be talking more about that at the end of the message. Um, I also want to talk briefly about God's nature. Um, There's Thomas Oden, by the way. Okay? Uh, God's nature includes attributes of God that are hypothetically, that hypothetically are pre-relational, pre-time, and pre-space. In other words, they're pre-world as we know the world. In other words, these, these attributes of God are there whether or not the world was ever created. This is just the way God is. Okay? We needed the world to be created because we needed to be created to be able to understand because we didn't exist, we couldn't get it, right? We wouldn't exist, we don't get the, we don't understand it, right? Because we don't exist. But nevertheless, these are things that hypothetically are pre-relational and this kind of thing, pre-space, pre-time, all that. So here's Odin's list of God's natures. God is uncreated. I highlighted that because I spent a little time talking about that. Uh, God is necessary. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Shema in the Old Testament. God is infinite. God is immense. God is an eternal being. And God is the life of all that lives. Uh, I could give sermons on every one of these. And I probably won't do that. But that would make a great sermon list. Uh, But but not going to do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about the two things I highlighted there. God is uncreated and God is the life of all that lives. Okay, so what does it mean for God to be uncreated? Well, uh, immediately I think of, and hopefully a few of you think of, Moses' experience with God at the burning bush. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Um, now, the words I am comes from the Hebrew, we, we transliterate it Yahweh, all right? It equals the name, uh, the title Lord, actually the name Lord. It's interesting that that's, we think of Lord as a title, but it's actually is God's name, Yahweh, the Lord, okay? It's also known as the Tetragrammaton, okay? Uh, which means four letters, basically. And good Jews don't ever pronounce Yahweh. They simply, uh, the way they vowel point the word in the Hebrew, when they see that those particular letters read from right to left, by the way. You see those particular letters, they just say Adonai because it's vowel pointed Adonai. And don't worry about it if I lost you with vowel pointing and that kind of thing. But the point is, is that, is that God reveals who he is to Moses at the burning bush. And this is what he's essentially saying. I am the one who exists. I was not created. Nothing exists before me. I am not dependent 
upon anyone for existing. In fact, logically speaking, it makes sense, right? Because if God was dependent on someone or something else to exist, that something or someone else would be God, right? So he's saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm absolutely uh, independent of all others in the sense that I don't depend on anyone for my existence. I am the uncreated one. So that's, what I, that's, that's immediately what I think of so forth. Now, that may seem like a lot of information for you and so forth, but I do think it's important that we understand who God is, right? God's nature. Because we live in a world that is confused by this. They, when you ask someone, who, you know, who is God? What's God like? Quite frankly, they don't really have a clue. They don't really know. And we have this tendency, especially today in this, what we call a postmodern world, of tendency to start thinking in terms of, of, of God, almost in, plurals, in a plural sense, and maybe not, if not that, at least in the sense of well, somehow, some way, God must have had some beginning. But no, God doesn't have a beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. Okay? So that's, uh, that has to do with the, um, with the uncreatedness of God. Uh, I want to go and ask this, uh, I want, or at least I want to talk about, about these, this other aspect of God's nature, and that is that God, God is the living one. Uh, this is illustrated or demonstrated very, um, not really demonstrated as much as illustrated uh, in the Old Testament in very dynamic ways. So in Jeremiah 10, uh, listen, listen to this word. Jeremiah 10, hear the word of the Lord, spoke, uh, hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens. Because the nations are dismayed at them. Those people were always looking for things in the heavens to tell them which way and so forth, how to live. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. I'm going to be growing cucumbers this year, so I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But anyway, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried. Isn't that something? Absolutely inanimate. For they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction, is but, or the instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They, uh, they are all the work of skilled Skilled men. But the Lord, and there's that word, or that really that name, Yahweh. See, every time you see Lord in the Old Testament, virtually every time, it's Yahweh. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. See how this is in contrast to idols? Idols are inanimate. But he's the living God. And the everlasting king and his wrath, at his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Um, 
God is the living God. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I'm a little bit, little bit estranged. My wife tells me that I'm a little bit different than most people. I don't know why I'm a little different. I still, I think I'm just a normal person or whatever. But, but I couldn't help but go, go to this here because those of you who are, do we have any Trekkies in the house? I mean, cause, because after all, you know, uh, yes, they ask all the time, what is life? You know, if you watch the series, you know, there's a lot of episodes they watch, what is, what is life? It is, seriously, every now and then they go to that question, what is life? And data being a, I don't know, this is ridiculous, but I said I wasn't going to use humor, but anyway, data being a, what is that thing? Is he, he's an, say some true Trekkies, ah, gotcha. I knew it. There were some Trekkies in here. He's an android. Data being an android, he struggles with the fact that he's not alive. But he is alive. But is he alive? He's an android. He can't be alive. So there's, there's that. And then, of course, then there's another, a whole other series, Voyager. And we have the Doctor. And the Doctor is a... See, I got him. Isn't this great? We got some Trekkies. They're, cl- they're closet Trekkies. See, I really, I'm not really a Trekkie. I'm really just a wannabe Trekkie. So I'm not a real Trekkie. Okay, but we know we got some Trekkies in the house. Okay, so, so he's a hologram, so can a hologram live? That's a question that is asked. Okay, I hope you put up with that. Anyway, so, uh, so here's what Odin says about life, okay, in, 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 as it relates to God. The life of God is the eternal, underived energy of his being, ever active within God himself, enabling movement and change in creation. Um. We struggle, don't we? we? We struggle with what is life? What does it mean to be alive? Um, it certainly has something to do with animation, but it has something to do with underived animation. And it also, I would, I, would, I would say, at least in terms of, of uh, I'll just say dynamic life, because plants don't have this, but I think there's a will that's involved, right, on some level? Right? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wonder. Anyway, so, so what have we done so far? So far we talked about the, the nature of God. I, I did open up with the character of God. We talked about the nature of God, the nature of God being pre-relational, right? Pre-relational, uh, pre-space, pre-time. And I focused upon the fact that God is the uncreated one and that God is the living one. Okay, so now I hope at this point in time you're saying, wow, what in the world does this have to do with Romans 8, verses 10 through 11? Really, it's, t- yeah, okay, well, that's a fair question, okay? It's a fair question. Let's take a look at, um, let's take a look at verse 9 to start with, just for a little context. We did read 1 through 11, but let's look at verse 9 for context. We've gone through this a little bit in the, in the church, or in the, on Sunday morning, where Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're not in Romans 7. You're not the Romans 7 person. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, and, and, and it's very important that we understand that. I don't want to go through the Greek with you at this point, but that we understand that. He's, he's just basically assuming, look, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. Because look at what he says. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There are no Christians who don't have the Spirit of God. You don't, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. It's that simple. That is like the, the, the dividing line, if you will. If someone asks, ever asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we can talk about the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, for, for sure. We can talk about, about having a relationship with Jesus, and that's for sure. 
But in terms of what we call uh, ontology, being, the beingness, if you will, okay, of a Christian, what is it that makes a Christian different in terms of his or her ontology, his beingness? It's the Holy Spirit, right? A person who's not a Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit. A person who is a Christian does have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is getting in verse, in verse 9. Okay, so let's take a look at verse, uh, verse 10 here. Take a look at this. Paul goes on, he says, and I gave you the Greek on the right side. But if Christ is in you, a de Christos and humane, humane, I should say, although the body is dead because of sin, tomain soma necron dia armatian, the spirit of life, or the spirit is life because of righteousness. De panuma zoe dia dikaiusene. All right, you probably don't need the Greek there, which is in case you wondered about how to pronounce that. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Okay, now, that first part there where it says, but if Christ is in you, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be translated and probably shouldn't be translated if, so as we think of if in the English language. What Paul's really trying to say here is that, but it's really trying to say this, since, or but since Christ is in you. He's already told us in verse 9, right, that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So he's saying that since Christ is in you. So he's using this to make two conclusions, right? It leads to two points anyway. Since Christ is in you. Very important, right? Um, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I had to throw this in here because of the fact that we have some people who've taken inductance to Bible study through me. Notice the contrast here, Right? Although the body, body is in contrast to spirit, dead is in contrast to life, sin is in contrast to righteousness. All right? So although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Um, boy, there's a powerful stuff right there. Okay? But I want you also to notice this. And that was for all you Bible students who, who really care about that stuff, which is, you probably should. Notice, notice what this says. Okay, or notice how I've emphasized this. You have the, what's known as the men-day construction in Greek. Tomen soma necron dia armatian. Okay, tode pneuma zoe dia dikaiusene. So you have the men-day construction. Now, what is that, what, what, what's the point here? The point is this. With the word men there, the emphasis, the emphasis becomes on the second part. So it goes like this. Paul's saying, essentially saying this. I think I'll go ahead and click on this. I think it'll help you. There you go. On the one hand, because this is really the best way to translate this. On the one hand, the body, okay, the body's dead because of sin. Sin leads to death, death right? We, we talked about this in Romans, the law of sin and death. Sin leads to death leads to a relationship without Christ, ultimately leads to a complete separation from God eternally. Sin leads to death. Right? On the one hand, the body, dead because of sin. But on the other hand, my real point, the thing I'm excited about, the thing I want you to get, the thing that you need to own, on the other hand, 
Spirit is life because of righteousness. All right, so how does this all fit together? Um, well, remember that we're talking about nature of God and character of God. Um, look at this. Sith Paul's saying this in this, in this uh, verse. He's essentially saying this. I wrote this down and I said, oh, I got to put this on the screen for everyone to read because I think it helps explain it. It's as if Paul's saying this. Look, we know that your body and my body is dead. We're dead, right? Our body's dead, right? We, it, it's bound for the grave because of what's happened in the Garden of Eden. Sin and death was passed down from one generation to another. Paul develops that earlier in the book. Look at yourself. You're getting older. Anyone here getting older? I'm getting older, you know. I try to avoid cemeteries, but I'm getting older, right? Look at yourself. You're getting older. You're falling apart. I was thinking to myself when I said that, by the way. You're beautiful. You know, you're great, right? I know I'm falling apart. Sin is going to take you down. At least it's going to take me down, right? In the sense that sin's been passed on through the generations, and we have our bodies decay, get, get older. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about that stuff. After all, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And it is the nature of God. See how this is tying together now? It is the nature of God to live. And that cannot be taken away. By definition, that cannot be taken away, right? He's the living one. You have to stay in him. We're not talking about you know, uh, eternal security in the sense of our rejecting Christ, perhaps, and committing apostasy. But the reality is, is that if we are in Christ, we're in the living one. And it's his nature to live, and so that cannot be taken away. He's the living one. He has taken a hold of your inner life. And because of Easter, amen, right? Because of Easter, we see that our hope is about to be realized. We will receive life. We do have life. But one day, when Jesus returns, or perhaps when we die and go to be with the Lord, we will have life in a greater way. And certainly when he returns, because then they get into the whole subject of, the, of, the, of bodies being raised and so forth, okay? But the question also is this. Why do we live? And why will we live? Um, well, here it is. What Paul's trying to tell us. Two things. And I've already commented on this because God's nature as the living one, we live because of that. He's the living one. But also, this one thing, because of God's character. Because it's God's character as the one who is righteous. You remember what the, remember what the verse says? Right? You know, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, there's a long history in the, in the uh, interpretation, in, uh, history of interpretation in the church. And this gets, gets, goes back to Luther. Luther really struggled with this whole idea of, of God being righteous. What does it mean for God to be righteous? He ended up hating that phrase because he just couldn't get his head around it. And he, later he appreciated it when he had his, what we call the evangelical awakening. He saw the righteousness primarily in terms of the gift to us. But here's the thing. Righteousness is not only a gift to us, it's also the character of God because it's his goodness. It means that God, I'll say it, he loves you. He loves you. God is good. 
You see? This has to do with this character. Um, I don't have space or time to, to really develop this, but I'm gonna, I have this up here. Character at its heart speaks of a relationship to persons. That means that his personality, his freedom, his will, and his goodness is directed toward each one of us. On the one hand, the body is dead because of sin, but on the other hand, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Um, just imagine for a moment, if you will. What if God only had a nature that was consistent with Odin's list? God was uncreated. God was necessary. God was one. God is infinite. God is immense. An eternal being, the life of all that lives. And he had that nature, but he didn't have that character that we talked about. What if he didn't have the character? You know, it's not necessarily logical or rational. You know, it can't go, uh, it's not a cause and effect thing. You can't say that because God has this nature, therefore God is loving. You can't do that. God could be absolutely these things, and yet he could care less about you. He doesn't need you, by the way, if all he is is, is, is that is his nature, right? Because it's pre-relational. But here's the good news. We see God's character being re revealed in the Old Testament through story after story after story, and then we see this great thing, this great thing here. Here we go, this slide. Oh, it's not on here. Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay, I, got, I had put this on later. It doesn't matter. I didn't get in the slide. Remember the story in Luke when Jesus is crucified? In chapter 23. I'm going to read this to you very, very shortly here. Um, let me go back. Let me go back to Luke. I'm going to read it right through the whole thing. Well, not the whole thing, but I'm going to an extended version here in Luke. So bear with me for a moment as I turn to Luke. Luke chapter 23, if you want to turn your Bibles. Here we go. Beginning with verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the, and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> Do 
God is. God forgives. It's possible, just possible, that someone here needs to be forgiven. I got a good word for you. Jesus has already forgiven you. Now, it may not be effective because you resist him and you don't want it. But say yes to Jesus because he loves you. The Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of goodness, because of his love for you. We live. It all comes down to who God is, doesn't it? We don't save ourselves. He saves us. He always works and we say thank you. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for, be, thank you for being who you are. Um, there, there's too much effort, if you will, in the, in the evangelical church too much about ourselves putting in the effort to get God to like us. God already likes you. <laughs> but I'm such a sinner. God already likes you. And greatest of all, he already loves you. Will you let him be the living one who loves? <laughs> and say thank you today. Father, we ask that you would bless this word that is proclaimed. We pray, Lord, that you would take it and change the way we think and change our hearts as we say thank you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.